I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. As we begin this morning, I just wanted to reach back to one thought that I mentioned last week because I, just, I started thinking about this through the week. As we observe the world around us, it is easy for us as Christians to become very critical of sinful patterns and behavior. And so last week I pointed out a specific area where I think we need to be careful. And to the church, that's exactly what our attitude should be. But I think that as we look at the world around us, our attitude should not be one of shock and dismay and disapproval and constant criticism. Because I don't believe that we reach the world around us in that way. But we do reach the world around us by seeking to live holy and pleasing lives. Okay, and so in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that's the thrust. Give yourself to God as a sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to Him. And when we do that, the world around us that watches the church being transformed by the power of the Spirit of God into holiness and into a sacrifice that pleases God, their attention will be attracted Okay, so that the world is not one by condemning it. The world is one by showing them the nature of Jesus Christ, the transformation that he brings in our lives as he binds us together as a holy people that are a living sacrifice. Okay, so I think it's important that we put the focus on us, not on the world around us, and allow God to use us as a transformative agent, a critical agent in our culture. Okay, that we are not here as inert ingredients, but we are in the world as active ingredients that God wants to unleash by the power of the Spirit to bring change. Okay, so we do that best, however, when we understand the nature of the church that God has called us to be part of. And we understand our relationship to the church as a whole, universally, but then more at this level of our local relationships to each other. And so this is the direction I want to move in in our study from the book of Romans. Understanding that the book of Romans does this through the first 11 chapters. It points out that we are great sinners, that the God that we serve and worship as we did this morning is a God who is holy. We deserve his just wrath and condemnation, but in his great mercy and love, he sent his son Jesus, whose perfect obedience and death in our place makes it possible for us to declare us righteous, for God to declare us righteous and to bring us into this new family that is called the church, the body of Christ. This is true for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And for everyone who trusts in Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now based upon that great foundation, that great truth of how we come to be believers, Paul issues a challenge to us. He urges us as the body of Christ to be everything that God wants us to be. Motivated not by duty, not because I have to do these things, but motivated by delight in who God is, by delight in what God has done for us. Okay, and that's the essence of our worship. Our worship and everything we give to God is a response to the greater gifts that He has given to us. So this morning, my challenge to you is going to be from Romans 12, verses 3, going down through verse 8. The challenge is, to love the body of Christ, to be committed to the body of Christ that God is creating as his witness to a watching world around us. So verses 1 and 2 were a general appeal to the church, dealing with our relationship to him on this vertical level. Okay, give yourselves to God, Paul says. I urge you to do that. 
All right, and once that is done, once we are rightly related to God, what happens? Our lives are so transformed that we begin to serve others around us, particularly in the context of the body of Christ, and then leaking out into the world around us. And we attract attention to this presence, to this organism that is called the body of Christ. This flow is seen in the great commandment. Jesus says the great commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Life on a vertical plane. And then what does he say? And love your neighbor as yourself. And there's an order of priority. Our love for God will inform our love for each other. Our love for God and our appreciation of God's love to us out of pure favor will inform our relationship with the world around us as we seek to communicate this absolutely, unbelievably amazing truth. The result is that we, in our service to God and in our service to each other, are not people trying to earn favor or approval from God. We are people responding to undeserved favor. Okay, and as you understand it, it will transform your life. That, that what we do and what we encourage each other to do in terms of preaching and, and serving one another is not duty-bound, but it's driven by delight. Driven by an understanding of what God has done for us. So as you begin in verse 3 of this text, which follows this call to respond to God with everything that we are because of His great grace and His great mercy, Paul says this, verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, all right, and you find just the focus is what? Grace has been given to me, and out of that grace, I am challenging you. So Paul's not high on a high horse saying, hey, I'm, I'm a man who has apostolic authority, and I'm coming to you to tell you how things are going to be in your life. What is he saying? I say to you, by the grace that has been given to me, overwhelmed by the favor of God, I come to you and challenge you and exhort you to be what God calls us to be. So by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but instead think of yourselves with a sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts. According to the, and here it comes again, grace given us. If a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Okay, so there's the kind of the, the, the thrust of the text that I would like us to focus our attention on so that God, I think, can challenge us to be the body of Christ in truth. Now, what you'll notice at the beginning of this text is that the challenge goes out to every one of you. Now, this is fascinating to me because the challenge is not to the church corporately. The challenge in this text is what? It's to the church individually, to every one of you. All right, so what's it going to be? There's going to be a call to commit to the purposes and plans of God in relationship to the gifting of the Spirit of God. That's the call. What's the implication of this emphasis on every one of you? I think the implication is this, all right? A church 
cannot be strong, a church cannot be committed apart from deeply committed individuals that make up that church. Okay, so the challenge isn't to the group, the challenge is to individuals who make up the larger picture. Okay, so when a church begins to grow and expand and experience growth and maturity, what's happening? The individuals are taking on more responsibility in relationship to God-given gifts, and they're pouring themselves into service to each other. As a result, the church grows, and its influence and witness in the world expands. All right, that is the design of God. The question that we need to ask ourselves is this. How can we become, in light of this passage description, there's others we could go to, but in light of this particular text, how can we become a more deeply committed, effective influence in our community? Okay, how, how can we do that? Understanding that, and, and, and I hope as you, as you drive around, as you think about what it means to be the presence of Christ in our community, the aim is that we would be a critical presence that makes a difference. How will that begin to happen? How will we move from, in a sense, what we could say is a complacency amongst individuals in the church to a white, heated, craving desire to be what God wants us to be? A sense of being relit. How do we get there? From this passage of Scripture, I want to make three suggestions. One relates to humility. One relates to unity. One relates to intensity. Okay, three words that will help us as a church to become more of what God wants us to be based upon the very simple teaching and reflections in this passage of scripture. So first of all, let's look at verse three. By the grace given to me, I say to each of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment and accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. I think the thrust of verse 3 is this. I think it is an encouragement to the church to cultivate an attitude of humility. Okay? And a, a, a call to the church to cultivate an attitude of humility. Now, what's fascinating in verse 3 is that the word think is used four times in the original language. Many of your translations will have it listed three times because in the one time it's kind of an assumed. Okay, but the focus is think of yourselves. Well, that's interesting. If I'm saying that I believe the thrust of verse 3 is to cultivate an attitude of humility, why would the Apostle Paul call us to focus our attention on ourselves? Right? So he says, think of yourselves. Okay, now, what is it that he wants us to think about ourselves? He wants us to participate in self-examination, not selfish thinking. Okay, and the encouragement is think about yourself, examine yourself. Don't examine yourself to gain a higher view of yourself. Examine yourself to find ways in which you can correct your life in relationship to the body of Christ and the work of God in the world around us. So it's not an encouragement to pride. It is instead this. It it is a call to think about yourself with sober judgment. The idea of sober judgment here is to be realistic, Okay, we live in a culture that for years has talked about the need to improve and encourage high self-esteem, right? And, and what does that do? That leads to more of a selfish or self-centered view of life. What is this text encouraging? All right, this text is encouraging, I believe, an accurate understanding of who you are in Jesus Christ. A sinner redeemed and saved by God's amazing grace. He has changed your life. And he has gifted you by the indwelling presence of his spirit so that you can have an impact on each other's lives. Now, that 
That's not meant by God to produce pride and a sense of arrogance. Because when you gain a sense of pride, what you will find is you will distance yourself from others. Because quite frankly, they don't deserve your blessings. They don't deserve your help. Okay, an accurate self-view will draw you to one another. Why? It's it's realistic. It grasps that, yes, God has given each of us as believers certain capacities and talents to bless each other. Not to make us better than each other. Okay, so in the church, what happens? We don't compete with each other. We serve each other. We're on the same team. Okay, and when we allow God to humble us by His grace, we will find that we are freed to serve and to bless and to help and encourage each other in the way that God wants us to. Where will this humility come from? Okay, how will I gain a realistic understanding, a real view of myself? And I I think the way that Paul does this is fascinating. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself, end of the verse, with sober judgment. That is a rational, realistic assessment. Think of yourself in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given to you. Now, we could be talking about faith in two perspectives here. It could be the quantity of faith that God has given. And we know in the Bible, there is this idea or teaching about the gift of faith. But it also could be, and I think the thrust of Paul's thinking here is this second thought in this context. Okay, that this gift of faith that is given you has resulted in what? It's resulted in your redemption. It's resulted in your forgiveness. It's resulted in the application of the work of Jesus on the cross to your life. And as a result, you have been changed. There is for you now no condemnation. Your life, the trajectory of it eternally has been altered. What should that do to us? Well, for everyone who's been at the foot of the cross, the grace of God should humble us and free us from the slavery of pride and the destructive force of pride in our lives. And and I want you to notice how I think Paul incorporates that here. At the beginning of verse 3, he says, I say this on the basis of the grace given to me. What is Paul saying? I'm an apostle because of God's grace. You're a believer in Jesus Christ because of the gift of faith that God gave you. I want you to think of this from, from two passages of Scripture. I just want to read these for you. 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you want to turn there, obviously you're welcome to do that. Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul reflects on how the grace and favor of God was poured into his life in a way that literally and completely changed him. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 13. Here's what Paul says. Listen to this. He says, even though I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, that is undeserving of God's love, I was shown mercy Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And then listen listen to what he says. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Because what is Paul saying? I'm in Christ. Because the grace of God... And the love of God and faith from God were poured out on me abundantly. And what happened? Paul became, on the road to Damascus, a completely transformed and changed individual. All right, the grace of God was doing what to Paul? It was humbling him. 
So that years down the road, as he writes the letter of, of, of Romans and this chapter, chapter 12, what is he saying? I'm speaking by the grace of God and the faith that was poured into me that has altered my eternal existence. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul alludes to this idea of faith being a gift from God. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of work so that no one can boast. So that the grace of salvation and the faith to believe are works of God in the heart of someone who has been convicted about their sin and drawn to trust in Christ. Now, what does that do? Here's what it says. Everyone that's in Christ should have a humble attitude towards each other and should cultivate that because we all come to Christ on the same basis. No one is in Christ because there was something amazingly attractive about them that drew God to move in their direction. We are all sinners, Romans 3.10 says, who have been, if you've trusted Christ, you've experienced the outpouring of God's grace and love and faith. And as he showed you your sinfulness, he drew out of you a changed heart. He drew out of you a response of faith that he poured out into you. What's the result? I'm in Christ. Not because I was smart enough to understand the gospel. I'm in Christ because God works. And so Paul can say to the church, he says, you all should have the same attitude because you've all been given this same measure of faith. And that faith, that saving faith that was poured into you has completely changed your life. And that should produce in your heart a humble attitude towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is important that we have an accurate self-understanding as believers. Understanding that we are precious in the eyes of Christ. That we are blessed in the grace of Christ. That we are forgiven in the grace of Christ. That's the common ground that we all stand on. And it should cultivate within us a humility and it should have the effect of killing pride so that no one in the context of the church is Mr. Big. Okay, no one is self-important. No one is better than others. But you know, you know what, what, what kills service and commitment in the church? Here's what kills it. Many people look around at others and compare themselves to each other. And you know who's most capable of doing that? Those that think too lowly of themselves. Okay, Paul says, don't think too highly of yourselves. Have sober judgment. What is sober judgment? Sober judgment is an accurate understanding of who you are in Christ. So if you are beating yourself up in your relationship to God by comparing yourself to people that you think are better than you, you're violating the thrust of this text. If you are in Jesus, Paul says, based on the mercies of God, I call you, I urge you, commit yourself to God. All right, and have a, have a humble, humble attitude. Don't have a self-defeating attitude. Okay, don't be self-critical to the point that you are self-destructive. Okay? Lift up your eyes a little bit. Lift up your countenance a little bit. See who you are in Christ. Let that produce in you an attitude of humility that will, will release you to be a servant to others. The second thought comes out of verses 4 and 5. Notice what the text says. It says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, what is Paul doing here? Paul is taking kind of, he's going to give us a very brief course in human anatomy, okay? 
He's, he's taking the human body and he's contrasting it to what you became part of at the time of your conversion to Christ. You were taken from the world and put into this new organism that is called the church or the body of Christ. All right, that's what God did at the point of your conversion. And so the, the thrust of verses 4 and 5 are that we need to cultivate also this appreciation of unity, an attitude of humility, and then an appreciation of unity, that we are one. And the analogy that he uses is the analogy of the human body. And in a sense, what is Paul saying? He's saying, take a look at your body. Okay, now for some of us, that can be scary, right? It's like, okay, next time you get a shower, make an observation. Your body is one unit made up of many parts. Okay, and Paul says, that's the way it is in the body of Christ. All right, this, this unity, it's one body, but it's incredibly diverse. It's made up of, of an unbelievable, virtually uncountable number of parts, molecules, cells. Okay, if you just go into a little study of the human body, you grasp, the, in, in a sense, the wonder and nature of this illustration that the Apostle Paul is using to communicate to believers their value as a unity and the importance of their acceptance of each other in this unity. Okay, because this moves in two ways. I need to take the gifts that God has given me and employ them in serving others. But I also need to be open to receiving the ministry of others. Why? I'm part of a, of a body. Okay, so it's important that we understand this, the body is one, but it has many parts. It is a blend of unity and diversity. Think of this real quickly with me, if you would. But how many bones are in the human body? And there isn't a difference between the number in men and women, as is often said from Genesis, okay? There's about 206 bones in the human body. That's the, that's the norm, Okay? How many cells are in the human eye? Okay, there are 120 million rod cells, 6 to 7 million cone cells. That's in your eye. Okay? Your foot has 26 bones, 33 joints, 107 ligaments, 19 muscles and tendons. Okay? If you think about bodily organs, all right, an organ is a complex structure made up of two or more tissue types. Examples of organs include the skin, each muscle, each bone, a lymph node, a blood vessel, a nerve, sense organs, etc. Given that there are over 700 muscles in the body and that there are on average 206 bones, there may be well over 1,000 organs in human body if you include all of the internal organs. That's astonishing. Your body is not one. It's made up of a diversity of pieces that all work together, all right, to produce a very powerful effect. Unity is important. Diversity is important. Both are essential. A variety of functions amongst all these parts works together to cause the body to be healthy, not handicapped. Now, what's the key? All right, the key, according to verse 5 in this text, is this. As a result of this picture of the church, each, 
belongs to the other. That is, we are bound together in Christ by the power of the Spirit into what? Into a body of which we have, by the grace of God, been made a part of which we are a part permanently. Okay? You could take any organ of your body, sever it, and it will die. It can't function apart from the unity, even though it is greatly diverse. Okay? As I thought through this, I thought, you know what? The truth is that any part of the human body severed from the body becomes what? Becomes grotesque. Right? It's, what, it's the stuff that horror films are made about. Severed body parts, because severed body parts don't have any beauty, nor do they have any function. And what happens in the context of church life? What happens is that we become independent. And when we do, we lose function and the church loses beauty. Okay? Now, I've never been in someone's house and seen a portrait of an elbow. Okay? Just not... Just not something that... Is it that we don't value our elbows? Uh, no. Here, here's the challenge I would give you. Most of us have never thought, you know, I am really grateful for my elbow. Okay? But here's what I would challenge you to do. Go home today and eat your lunch without using your elbows. Or try to brush your teeth without using your elbows. You, you have to get really creative. Okay? What's the picture? What is the picture of Paul saying? Paul's saying every part of the body is beautiful when it is attached to the body. It has a function and it has a beauty and a corporate oneness. But when it is separated, it loses beauty and function and ultimately life itself. And I think we could make the observation that for many of us, our relationship to the body of Christ is often detached. We lack a vital understanding and appreciation for the unity that God has brought together in the church. A few years back, I was sharing this story with a couple friends uh, about a week ago. I was starting a lawnmower. And when I did, it was an eight horsepower, one of those old uh, Toro bicycle handle type lawnmowers. I I went to start that. I pulled the uh, cord And the engine compressed, drew my hand back towards the motor, which caused me to let go of the the cord and then pull my hand away. In the process of doing that, my finger, I think it was my second finger, caught the shroud and I left behind something very important. All right, my fingernail was instantaneously plucked out. Okay? I felt this fire in my hand and my whole body began to respond to this wound or this injury that had taken place. Carrie Smith will remember this quite well because she's a nurse and she's the person I called on the phone. And I'm hopping around the yard, my whole body responding to what? An injury that affected part. Now, I could have said to myself, hey, Tim, it's just a fingernail, relax. Right? But my body did not give me that option. Okay, after I got done hopping around and, and, and got through the shock of what had happened, I went in, I laid down on the couch. And you know what happened? My whole body just began to shut down. Then Carrie showed up and said, oh, we need to scrub that with hydrogen peroxide. I was like, no! (laughs) My whole body went into fetal position, right? No, why? Because when, when your body gets injured, what happens? 
Your whole body responds to that. I've been dealing with a, a, a crown of a cracked tooth that has a crown on it now and everything's not working out quite right yet. And that my existence is affected by that. All right, my, my capacity to function the day that I had that fingernail plucked out of my hand, my whole body's course for that day, what I planned to do for that day, was changed because of an injury of one small part. Folks, here's what the Bible says. Rejoice with those that rejoice in the body. Weep with those that weep in the body. Encourage those that need encouragement in the body. Why? We're one. Yes, we have many functions and many gifts and a great variety in the church. But we tend to fail to value the unity that is blessed by diversity. And we tend to focus on high-profile gifts. Right? And we do the same thing with the physical body, don't we? We don't value elbows. All right? In a strange way, we value other things. We think they're more important. Right? But that's not the way that it is. By God's design, every part has an important function that contributes to the health of the whole. In the body of Christ, we each provide and receive. We each make important contributions by design, and we all receive important contributions by God's design. It's the nature of the church. The The pride of thinking that I can get along without others is what Paul is confronting here. We're all part of something bigger than ourselves. Think accurately about yourself. No part of the body severed can survive on its own. That's the thrust. So understand it's a unity and contribute in in, in a committed way to that unity. We need and should value each other. We are all important. None of us are self-important. And in the context of church life, what happens? We tend to overvalue visible parts. Right? That's what we do. And I would argue that the invisible parts of the church are often doing the most important things in the church. The things that really keep it going. That really give a church cohesion and make it one. And God wants us to, to value this. And, and, and God's vision for the church in this regard is that we would be a mutually ministering body with a variety of gifts and contributions. That we wouldn't be about one moment in the week, but we would be about the week and the living out of our faith as believers. That's what God wants. And the challenge I want to give you this morning is this. Find a setting in the context of the chapel family where you can start to make a vital contribution to each other. Where we really begin to understand, appreciate, and participate in body life. And that can be in groups of one or two. It can be in a group of ten or twelve. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's officially recognized or not. What what is important is that we realize that the Spirit of God has come to earth to build a body. And that body is His witness to the world. And that witness to the world cannot be effective apart from an appreciation of the unity that God has called us to be as the body of Christ. Verses 6 and 8 real quickly say this. We have different gifts. Now this is, so here's the analogy of the body. And then he applies it now specifically to our experience as Christians. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. And on and on Paul goes. 
Okay? And so, in a sense, what is he saying? Whatever your gifts and capacities, and, and the list that's given here is not an exhaustive list. Right? There's eight spiritual gifts listed here. If you go through the entirety of, of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4, and this text, you'll find approximately 18 to 19 spiritual gifts that are listed. It's not to say that any of those lists are intended to be utterly exhaustive. Nor that, that it's individual gifts. I have this gift and that's all that I do. No, there, there are varieties and there are mixes and blends of spiritual gifts that God gifts. The other problem that we run into when we study spiritual gifts is what? It tends to be an area where there is such great difference of opinion that most churches avoid the discussion because we don't want to involve ourselves in controversy. And what are we doing? We're devaluing the body of Christ. God has given gifts to the church to help her to be strong and unified and to be the witness that God intends for us to be in the world. And so this, this, the, the last thought that I want to share with you is this. I, I believe God wants us to cultivate intensity in our service to each other. All right? At the end of this set of verses, particularly at the end of verse 8, the Apostle Paul uses three words. Generosity, he says do that with diligence. If it's zeal, or, 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 with, with generosity, with diligence, and cheerfully. There are three words that do what? They kind of ramp up uh, intensity. Okay, and as you, as you read through this text, what do you start to get the sense that Paul's saying? What Paul's saying is, whatever your gift is, do it, unleash it, use it. Have an effect in the church that God has called you to. Don't devalue the unity of the church. Instead, embrace an idea of, of intensity or commitment to what God wants to do. Take the gift you have and unleash it for the glory of God. Unleash it in a way that is humble. But unleash the gift. Spiritual gifts are what? They are God-given capacities and power to build up and strengthen each other in Christ. They are sovereignly distributed. So I shouldn't be jealous of the gifts that other people have. I should be glad for the gifts that they have. That they have. And I should understand the gifts that I have and employ them in serving others in the body of Christ. We each have a role to fulfill. We each have a function in the context of body life. And God has given this idea of spiritual gifts. And in this context, the word for gifts is charis. All right, it's this simple word for grace. And it comes in a manifold way. It's in the plural. God has distributed graces to the church. Those graces are enablements to make the church strong and effective. But they are also empowerments to make your service count for the glory of Christ. So we, this is what Paul says at the beginning, right? Verse 3 of this text. What does he say? I say by the grace of God given to me. Paul speaks out of the grace of God. What's the grace doing? It has gifted him with a, a specific appointment of apostleship, but it is also empowering him to fulfill that role. So God gives you a capacity and he gives you power to be effective in the context of your church experience. The tone of the exhortations produces in each of us a sense of responsibility. It's kind of a just do it kind of approach that Paul is using. So what does Satan want to do? You know what Satan wants to do? He wants you to overvalue your gift so that other people are undeserving of it. Or he wants you to undervalue your gift so that you never unleash it. Because you don't think it really matters. And the result is the church becomes complacent. In terms of our relationships to each other. We may be committed to being there on Sunday morning. 
but we may not really be devoted to each other. And here's what it does. It leads me back to this thought or question that all of us must address. Is my relationship to the church casual? Or is it committed, devoted? Am I dating the church? Or have I married the church? Do I like the church? Or do I love the church? And see, if I love the church, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at my life and say, okay, God, what gifts have you given me? How can I make a difference in the lives of my brothers and sisters? Because if God has given me capacities, and he has, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 is so clear. He has given to each one individually as he wills. Sovereign distribution to every believer of a capacity to help others. And a healthy body can then what? A healthy body that's supporting itself in the context of a local church can then begin to see its power and effectiveness unleashed on the world around it. Okay? So God, in his wisdom, has given gifts to the church. His desire is to create an intense love for each other so that we come away from verse 5 saying, each belongs to the other. And each belongs to each other in this, in, this, in this realm of gifting where God has given us not only permission to help each other, but he's given us a capacity to help each other and power by the Spirit to help each other. That's what he's done. This is the wisdom of God in the church. And as you begin to function in these sorts of ways, I think you will be helped in understanding what your gift is by understanding what Areas of ministry bring delight and energy to my life. Okay? As I use that gift, what, what brings joy before God? A God-exalting joy that says, God, thank you for that capacity. Thank you for that gift. Help me to love the body that you shed the blood of your son to purchase. Folks, that's how much God loves the church. He gave his resources in his son to purchase us and to free us from our sin. And then he gives us the gift of faith to trust and to respond to what he has done so that we are brought into this new relationship called the body of Christ. And there he gifts you and fills you with the spirit so that you not only have capacities and permission, but power to make a difference. And when we understand that, we will move from being casual and complacent to being committed and devoted parts of the body of Christ because we understand that there is something bigger at stake here than whether I desire to or not the plan of God the purpose of God is what is at issue here the good news is this for all of us we all come to Christ in the same way grace alone faith alone Christ alone and the result verse 5 and it just just pick this one phrase. He says, so in Christ, we who are many form one body. So the context is what? It's everyone who is in Christ. And, and what do we get in Christ? In Christ, we get forgiveness. In Christ, we get righteousness. In Christ, we gain the gifts of the Spirit of God. In Christ, we have no condemnation. See, these, and you could go through the New Testament. Just look at the phrase, in Christ, and look at all of the blessings that come to us. In Christ, what are we? We are his body. We are his physical representation on earth. So Paul says to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 12, I think it's verse 27, you are the body of Christ. 
and individually parts of it, which is to say what? This beautiful picture, this glorious picture of a humble people unified and urgent about their test, that beautiful picture is what? It is Jesus Christ for the world. You are the body of Christ. When you walk into your workplace, you bring Jesus with you. You represent Jesus. When we gather together as the church, what are we doing? We represent Christ. We are his body. It's powerful. And I think it will cause us to move from being casual to being intense. And it will also help us to defeat the lies of the evil one that says, you know, the contribution you make, it really isn't that significant. And it's really not necessary. And the result is what? The body becomes handicapped because we believe the lies of the evil one. Who want, you know what he wants? He wants you sitting in the bleachers. He doesn't want you on the field. Okay? He wants you to be competitive with each other, not serving each other. And you, you'll find in your heart those attitudes rise up. Kind of all have to sit in the bleachers and watch what God is doing, but I'm not going to get on the field and play the game. And God, by the Spirit, wants us to get on the field and play the game for his glory. Because we are his visible representation in this world. Father, help us to be encouraged by the picture of the church that the Apostle Paul paints for us in this text.